Speaking of holy podcasts, it's the Word on the Hill with the Lanky Guys. Welcome back, everybody. You know, we have music. <laughs> Dude, come on. I, I know never, it's not playing now for you. I never get to hear the, the introduction. Intro- intro- it's because you never listen music. to the podcast. I do listen to the podcast no, when, when, when I don't have anything podcast. to say. That's how you don't know how much I edit. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> I, every once in a while. It's really just me. I'll be going over to the, to the mass, and I'll be like, oh, man, I don't even know what I'm going to preach about today. Oh, no. And then I kind of feel like just like a bad pastor. But then it, it dawns upon me. I'm like, I can listen to I the last 10 minutes own. of oh, the podcast. The last 10 minutes? Yeah, because we bring it all together. We take the ideas yeah. that we've been doing. Yeah, fair enough. That's fair. It's, it's, it's really the Cliff Notes version. So for all those- Don't tell them that. I know. you got to listen from the beginning. Well, if you listen from the beginning, you get so many amazing things, and then you all get to put stuff. it together. Yeah. But dude, I, what I love is we've been gaining listenership. Well, really quick, I'm Scott Powell. This is for station identification. Welcome to the station identification. I'm Father Peter Mosett, and you're listening to the Lanky Guys, the Word on the Hill. That's it. Yeah. Sorry, what were you saying about our listenership? I have to say that I, I really love our listenership. You guys, <laughs> everybody who tells me that they listen to the podcast, I have such a deep affection for you. Likewise. And, and like, a little bit of an embarrassment. Uh, yeah. But like, mainly more affection than anything but it, else. It feels like you guys have been hanging out with us in just kind of a raw state. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Wherever we are, that is true. I feel like you're our friends because only friends can hang out with each other and like kind of know where each other are at and like let them be that way, but still garner good things from them. We garner all the good things. Well, we're um hit, hitting in uh hitting in at the third Sunday in ordinary time. Coming in at 160 pounds is the third Sunday of ordinary time. <laughs> our first reading is coming from the book of Isaiah. Surprise, surprise. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 23, through chapter 9, verse 3. Or, if you're using some translations, it's just chapter 9, verse 1 through 3. There's debate in the manuscript tradition over where verse 23 oh, falls. Oh, that's right. I remember us doing that many years ago. Yeah, so we can. I just point that out in case you're reading along in your Bible and you're like, wait a second, this isn't chapter 8, verse 23 for me. So. Okay, and then uh, our, our psalm is Psalm 27, verses 1, 4... 13 to 14, and our responsicle is from 1A. All right, our second reading is coming from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 through 13, and then throwing in for good measure, verse 17. Then our gospel passage, we have two forms, a longer form and a shorter form, but I'm just going to read you the long form. Which one do you long, think we're going to do? The long form. <laughs> <laughs> it's Matthew 4, 12 to 23. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we're back in, back in good old Isaiah this week. Dude. Where we spend a considerable amount of time. Dude, I, we think we need to do a statistical analysis of the amount of times that Isaiah is present within these other things. Well, in the Sunday readings, certainly. Although, you know, no, I think it shows up a lot. I was going to say, maybe it just seems like that when we're in the midst of it, but I think Isaiah shows up an awful lot. It's a very big book. Dude, There's a lot of Isaiah. There is a lot of you Isaiah. You know what shows up every week is the psalm. We're <laughs> always in that psalm. Dude, we're always in that book, dude. I know. Dude, seriously, we never get out of that book. Yeah, okay. That joke's dead. <laughs> that was not funny. So no, and I started it. But you are more responsible because you kept going with it. <laughs> After you should have realized it wasn't funny. Okay, so All right, Isaiah. I was looking at, at Zebulun and Naphtali. Okay. okay. And I'll tell you that um there was Ezekiel's vision. I, I was like trying to find a map that coordinated and when I looked at Zebulun and Naphtali, I could at first I thought Naphtali was like way up north. And no, then, no, no, no. Naphtali is they're next no- to each other. Yeah, no, but this is the thing: is like Ezekiel's vision of the Promised Land 
had some like messed up stuff in Ezekiel. Some, uh, Why are you in Ezekiel? I, I was just looking at maps. I was okay, looking okay, at maps, cool. trying to Zebulun and Naphtali. Right. I couldn't figure it out. Would you please tell me What's what the in the heck is Zebulun and Naphtali, and why do they are they significant? Well, they're significant because they were the two. They were the first two tribal areas to be overtaken by the Assyrians. Are you in serious? the conquest of? I think it was seven thirty something like that. Uh, when um, yeah, the Assyrian king uh, Tiglath uh, Pileser the third attacked in seven thirty four. Seven thirty four and seven thirty two. It's it's Zebulun and Naphtali were the first ones Tiglath. to go down. Dude, Tiglath battle. is such a punk, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Wait. So so is your question about geography? Because I think I may have even said at some point on the podcast. I, I think they were the northernmost. Are they not the northernmost two tribes? I was, I thought it was like um, Tishba and. Tishba is uh, not a tribe, is it? No, it's not a tribe. Oh, so Zebulun and Naphtali are tribes? Yes. Okay, that's their I, significance. I'm looking for significance. Like, why? Why does Zebulun and Naphtali? Because this is doubling up for us today. The first two tribes to go down. Man. Yeah, that's their significance. So because yeah, and as Father Peter's pointing out, this is our prophecy in Isaiah. Matthew then quotes this prophecy, or Jesus quotes through Matthew. Matthew Isaiah. through Jesus. Dude, Both. wouldn't you feel cool if Jesus was co- quoting you for anything? Uh yeah. I He's mean, not. Dude, if <laughs> Scott I, Powell said. If I got a quote in the catechism, I'd be pretty stoked. That's if, more of the church. If quoting. I got a quote on Catholic Stuff You Should Know, I would be stoked. Here's a shout out to Catholic Stuff You Should Know. A podcast of, of a bunch of people who talk about the most random Catholic things that you could possibly imagine. The earlier episodes were short. Longer episodes are longer. Yeah, that's true. Um, the Zebulun and Naphtali occupied lands north and west of the Sea of Galilee. In the 8th century, these territories were overrun. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I, um, they're they're tribes, though. Is is that the issue? Yeah, though that was that was. But Zebulun and Naphtali difficulty? are definitely tribes that didn't do anything, man. They're like they're, those guys have no history for nothing. Well, that stinks. I'm sure they did stuff. I mean, yeah, what do you mean they didn't do anything. They, they were just like chilling out. When have you? When was the last time you were like, dude, Father Zebulun Peter, was rocking? Because I feel like you were being mean toward the tribes. I'm gonna call you out on something, mm-hmm. and you're not gonna like it. I dare you. To name five tribes of Israel. Okay, let me see if I can do this. I might make it six. Okay, you said five. Okay, fine. Okay, so yeah. I've got um, Judah, Dan. Dan, Z- everybody always picks Dan. Zebulun, Naphtali. <laughs> yeah, that, seems like, <laughs> that seems like cheating. And, um, and uh, um, Oh, uh, good. Okay, I could think no, of at no, least no. two more that I was sure you'd say. I, um, this is good. You should all follow along at home. Try to name tribes. Uh, I I I can't come up with it. I thought you I thought Dude. you'd get at least Benjamin and Benjamin Levi and Levi. So that's why. Oh, but man. okay, so people are yelling at their, name their one beyond that iPhones. Um, uh, uh, Judah. You already said Judah. My <laughs> point is, my point is not to not to make you look dumb on air. My <laughs> point is that it's hard to to pick on Zebulun and Naphtali I'm very because there's only that. a small handful of tribes that do get much press. I mean, there's 12 of them, for Pete's sake. And we don't hear a whole lot from, from literally most of those tribes. Why is that? Because, I don't know, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think the, the simplest answer is that, I mean, you definitely hear, if you read the books of uh, Joshua and Judges, yeah. this is when you really get the play-by, uh, Joshua and Judges are when you get the play-by-play of each of the 12 tribes 
um, acquiring their land. And uh, usually you get the worst of them and how they're failing in acquiring the land and how they're compromising <laughs> with the Canaanites and everything else. So the only time you, they really do get a whole lot of press is a pretty negative statement. Um, on, Levi but, but other than that... Get, Levi doesn't have land, though. No, Levi doesn't have land. They're still one of the 12 tribes. I know, but I just... They're still a tribe. I was trying to think of them in my land. Geographically. I was That's fair. Geographically. That's fine. You're allowed to do that. Tarshish. But, Tarshish is not a tribe. <laughs> oh my gosh! Um, but th- but the other reason is that when the civil war happens and when the ten tribes kind of break off and found the northern kingdom, in a, in a real way, the ten tribes sort of all get absorbed together. Yeah. So Ephraim is the tribe. That's another one that sort of becomes the Moab. The the look to yeah Moab the 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 go to. So the northern kingdom is often called Ephraim. Because it's the tribe that kind of leads the rest. The north, the southern kingdom is called Judah. So they're Benjamin kind of the archdiocese of the north, kind of, yeah, so to speak. But yeah, the reason we don't hear that much is because they do kind of get absorbed together. Yeah. But regardless, they're there, dude. I feel like that that would be a really good thing to have memorized. All twelve tribes. Yeah. I wonder how many people were shouting at their phones. If you probably not many. If you were like, if you have the original twelve tribes of Israel uh, memorized, tattooed on your back. Then please send us a picture, and you will win free Lanky Guy <laughs> swag. Send us a when... picture <laughs> of your tattoo. Of your tattoo. Hopefully, please. it is the geography of Israel with <laughs> each of the geographic plots. Please, okay. thank you. Yeah. Um, it's hard for me to talk. So, so that, that that's some background for our first reading. It's hard. I, I, I because the gospel quotes such a substantial chunk of the first reading. It's hard to go too much in depth about the first reading before we get to the gospel because Jesus is going to pull out, you know, so much of this. Well, isn't but, isn't this the isn't this the reality of like quoting something to incite the larger context in yeah. your mind? Yeah, this is a rabbinic tradition to quote something to to recall the rest. Yeah. So, we do it, that we do, we do that in our normal daily lives. We do, absolutely. So, what it what it says now, hmm, Oh, there's so many layers. Oh, there's so many layers to the scriptures. Which is beautiful. It's like an onion that we just peel and peel and peel. But um, there are different layers of fulfillment of what Isaiah is saying. So Isaiah, and remember, this is in the beginning part of the book. So it's looking toward the time when Israel is about to be overtaken. It's looking toward the Assyrian conquest. Okay. Uh, Isaiah will then look toward the Babylonian conquest. So the Assyrians overtook that northern kingdom, of which Zebulun and Naphtali were kind of at the top of. So Zebulun and Naphtali, just to situate it in your head... I think I mentioned this. It's north and west of the Sea of Galilee. So if you can picture the Sea of Galilee. So it's really uh, around the area where Jesus grew up. Jesus grew up just south of there, uh, down in Nazareth, which is up north. Okay, so that's where we are. But um, as Isaiah is looking toward Assyria, who is bearing down on Israel, about to destroy everything, knowing that either uh, Zebulun and Natali have already gone down or are about to, he says, first the Lord degraded. No, sorry, this is recalling that what's just happened. The Lord degraded the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. Why? Because they were the first ones, essentially, not just to go down in the war, but to receive the punishment mm. that the Lord had had um, doled out to them, that the prophets warned them about. They were the first to receive that punishment. Um, but in the end, he has glorified the seaward road, the land west of the Jordan, the district of the Gentiles. Anguish has taken wing, dispelled its darkness, for there's no gloom, where there, where, um, but now there was distress. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who dwelt in the land of gloom, a light has shone. And Christmas. you have brought them abundant joy and great rejoicing, and they rejoice before you as the harvest. They make merry, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they're... 
We, in a, which in we just had this time, reading in Christmas. We did. Now, for Isaiah, though, he's thinking about the Assyrians. He's thinking about probably the fact that the Assyrians are going to be defeated by God and these lands are going to be restored, mm. which never fully happens. The northern kingdom never comes oh, back. No, really. no. That, that's actually Judah does. part of the thing. Until the New Testament. So, I mean, Isaiah is looking forward of like... There's going to be a time, hey, Zebulun and Naphtali, hey, northern kingdom, it's going to be okay. God is going to restore you. He's going to set things right again. Little does Isaiah know that that really won't, I mean, on a certain level, it does happen when the Assyrians fall and essentially the Babylonians take them over and there is some redemption and there are some people who are able to come back and Jewish people certainly settle back in that area, but it never kind of recoups what it used to be until... And not even until the time of Jesus. I mean, you never get, this is uh, going to be mainly, a, even when Jesus is living, when he's growing up around here, and when he's beginning his public ministry, this is predominantly a Gentile territory, which is why it's interesting that even in Isaiah, the subplot of the Gentiles, this district of the Gentiles, it's already embedded in there. And what that's doing is preparing us and preparing the gospel for what Jesus's ultimate mission is. It's a redemption, not just of these tribes, not just of the structure of Israel, not just of the Hebrew people, but it's a redemption of all humankind, right. which is why this whole thing is beginning in the district of the Gentiles. The very tribes that were most shamed in the time of Isaiah, because they were the first ones to receive that punishment, Oof. are going to be precisely where Jesus goes first to right. begin the plan of redemption. He starts there because they were the first ones to be Which shamed. is to gather all of the tribes of Israel back together. But the only way that you can do that is to gather all the tribes. Everybody else. Everybody. Yeah. I want everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And this, this um, foreshadow, this, this prediction, this prophecy that Isaiah gives about giving them abundant joy. This hasn't happened yet in Isaiah's time. He's looking forward to it happening. There's going to be great rejoicing. There's not rejoicing in this time. They're still weeping and mourning and being devastated. He's talking about people making merry when dividing spoils for the yoke that burdened them. The pole on their shoulder and the rod of their taskmaster, you have smashed as on the day of Midian. I'm hearing imagery of the rods of taskmasters. I'm thinking of the Exodus story. I mean, this is Pharaoh, Exodus, Egypt language. But and what you what's should also funny, though, is that, is that at the heart of it, though, I hear the law. How so? The, 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 the slavery of the law, the rod of the taskmaster, you smashed. Yeah, yeah, I, like, I hear you. I'm, I'm like, there with Like, there's you, a certain sense it's like moving out of law into spirit. But the reason you think that, if I may be so bold. Be bold. I think, I hope this isn't pretentious, the reason I think you think that is because you are formed by St. Paul's words about the law, of which he's using the imagery of Exodus to describe. It's Paul who is using the Israelite language of the Exodus, the taskmasters, yes. Pharaoh, all of these things, to explain what the law was. So, I mean... In a certain sense, you're, the fact that you said that shows that you've been formed in the thought of St. Paul. Yes. and Because he wants you thinking of that. that anal because the analogy is sin is just like Pharaoh, who was relentless, who kept bearing down on you, never released this burden that was placed on top of you. That's what sin does, especially when you give in to it. Hold on. I just am like having this burgeoning thought that, you know how, okay, what happens is that I like to have a mass where the music at that mass is very emotional. 
praise and worship, like like that that kind of thing. Partly because if somebody's functioning in an emotion over an emotional state or in an emotional place, that to be able to take that emotion and then redirect it towards God is actually really profound and holy and important. Yeah, certainly. And in a certainly. certain sense, if you're if you're acclimated to the rod of the taskmaster for 500 years, what if what if the law was actually a service to what they were recognizing as like important and real in their lives that like hmm. in in fact it was like kind of catching the place where they were already responding and trying to move them past the law absolutely no i think i mean that is the pedagogue that is the law is a pedagogue yes and that's what the law is trying to count i think i think i think saint paul would agree with you let's hey. put it that way well or i, I agree with saint paul man one of the two yeah but you're assessment of what he's trying to say. Thank He'd you, say, Paul. Yeah, I think you got it, Father Peter. Thanks. FP, what up? Whoop, whoop. He wouldn't say that. He would he's... go to Pauly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so hold on to that. Um, but again, there, there's, I don't know, I, I I can't escape the fact that Isaiah, the beauty of the fact that Isaiah is saying all this, we can't miss the fact that Isaiah is saying all of what he's saying in the midst of, of not having experienced it. He's talking about this joy and rejoicing and this breaking of the taskmaster and the rod being smashed, even though it's all in full force when he's saying those things. Uh, but, you know, we were talking before the podcast about this, the, 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 the Christian struggle of trying to put yourself in the center of God's will. Right. Which means not necessarily knowing the way out, but knowing that God has that way out planned. You haven't seen it yet, but I trust, I believe the work of faith, so says the gospel, right, mm-hmm. is to believe, right. but it's hard work. Right. Isaiah is putting in that hard work and saying, you guys, even though nothing looks like it, this is what the Lord has in store. Little does Isaiah know they're going to have to wait a couple thousand years for that to actually take place. <laughs> yeah. Or I'm, I'm sorry, about not a thousand years, about 700 years for that to actually take place. But yet he sees it and he lives in that place and he tries to call the rest. The, the interesting thing about Isaiah is that he is a royal prophet. So he's not one of these people like Jeremiah, who is just <laughs> one of those is, people kind of out running around looking like a crazy person. He was in the court of the king. His job was to be the insider, speaking truth into power, into the power structure, which uh, probably would have been a pretty lonely job. Yeah, he probably was considered a royal pain in the butt. Ah, see what he did there. All right, that takes us to the psalm. And the, the psalm, I think, speaks to this. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Uh, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is my life's refuge. Whom shall I be afraid? It's this reminder, like, it's cool. God has got this. We're living in the midst of this trust. But again, it needs to, there's something that's built into the psalm that I found this morning. I found fascinating. If you take the psalm as a whole, now we don't get the whole psalm, obviously. But um, this is one psalm, but I think you could, if you break Psalm 27 in half, there's two themes that kind of come out. The first half, um, it, it's basically speaking ab- about the Lord. So the Lord is my light. The Lord is my salvation. The Lord is my refuge. Who shall I be afraid of? But in the second part of the psalm, the Lord is not spoken about. He's spoken to and he's petitioned. And it says things like, I hear my voice. I call on you, O Lord. Rescue me, O Lord. So you have this sort of, paradox within the middle of this psalm of here is what the Lord has done. I'm confident in that, but I still need the Lord to do it again because it's not done yet. I know I can look back and this is so much of living the Christian life, being in the middle of that place where Isaiah is saying, I don't see this yet, but I'm trusting because I've seen him do it before. 
I've seen the Lord. He's been my salvation. He's been my light. He's done these things. And now, God, I really need you to do it again. Mm-hmm. That is at the heart of this psalm. And I wonder if the psalmist had in mind this, this idea that there's two kind of discrete sections to the psalm, looking back and then looking forward, recalling and petitioning. This is, this is in a certain sense, how the Mass is structured. Am I right? I mean, the Mass is, I've always thought about the Mass in a certain sense, as past, present, and future. We recall what the Lord has done. We bring that into the present. We recall Christ's saving work. It is brought into this moment for the sake of where he's leading us from that point on. Mm. Christ, um, you, you, are, you, you were, you are, and you are to come. Um, that, that, that kind of doxology. This yeah. is what that psalm is doing, which I think makes it a great complement to what Isaiah is pointing toward. But a good reminder that Isaiah actually hasn't seen any of the stuff that he's prophesying about yet. It's still pretty ugly, which is a psalm for that situation. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And and I I, I even, I just love whenever the psalms are talking about um, getting away from fear, I am moved because I think that the, that um, I can get caught in so much fear in my own life, and fear is dumb. And the people that I'm around can get caught in fear, and that it's like you talking about me. Yeah, I am. And that it's just it's just so easy. That's like the deepest human nature is to say, if I fear, then I'll be okay, because I don't want to be surprised. This is good. You have created a good segue into the second reading. Hey, man. I didn't know how to segue it, but you've done it. That's my Sterling engine for you. You you and your Sterling engine. I don't know what that means. That's the engine that powers the Segway um, personal <laughs> mobile device. <laughs> it's a very specific type of engine. Oh, I wish you rode around a Segway. Oh, Just we, from the rectory to the student center. Dude, I do too. Ooh, there's no they, reason you can't. There's no. I mean, except for cost. Segways are expensive. How much could they be? Did Somebody you just, should did you just point, no, point at my no, aquarium? I <laughs> Dude, I got that off of Craigslist for 300 bucks. How much is a Segway? Thousands? Someone donate a Segway to Father hey, Peter, please. Hey, if anybody has a Segway that's just chilling just out. Just lying around. Just like, dude, I'll, I'll, I'll ride that Segway like nobody's rode that Segway. All right, this is the point where everyone wants to fast forward. Okay, second, <laughs> f- second reading, First Corinthians. Sorry, Bob. Sorry, Steve. <laughs> just the Paselli family. Um... So last week, we uh, had this very interesting reading that was just the greeting of 1 Corinthians. Yeah, the dude, greet it up, man. (laughs) Yes. Do you know that one time I got asked to do a Bible study on on Corinthians? Mm. And... uh, and one of my favorite books. I know, me too. And I literally <laughs> did a Bible study on like the first six verses. That's it. And they expected me to do the whole book. Oh my. And I got there and I had spoken for like an hour and a half. And I was like, <laughs> is this what you guys were looking for? Oh my. <laughs> and they were all looking at me and it was like Explorers and Faith Club. Do you remember the Explorers and Faith here? Yeah, I, I yeah, do yeah, actually. They, they enjoyed it, but they were like, yeah, that was, um, we kind of wanted to do that and another book. It was like- <laughs> On the same night? Oh yeah. Oh, my. And I was like, yeah, that was- a, I would, I, Well, that's not doing it justice. I was like, but it, this was a good Bible study anyway. Yeah. All right. So- this is when Paul gets to the issue. So he gave the greetings, and I mentioned last week that in the greetings of most of Paul's letters, you actually get some of the key themes that will come out. Right. Um, but now I'm playing on this this idea uh, of fear that you brought up, which is brought out in the psalm, of course, but how we sometimes act out of fear and live mm-hmm. out of fear. Yep. Now, the Corinthians, quite frankly, have a lot to fear. They are... Um, they... What do we say about... How do I summarize this? The Corinth... You guys, I, I think it's one of the most fascinating group of people, cultures, 
in uh, any biblical text because the, the Corinthians, a couple things to know about Corinth. Corinth was a very, very wealthy town, but it was all new wealth. So Corinth was one of the only places in the Roman Empire. So most of the Roman Empire, most of the ancient world operated, you know, more or less in what we would think of as like a caste system. You know, right. your father was a carpenter. His father was a carpenter. His father was a carpenter. You're probably going to be a carpenter, you know, or your father was rich and wealthy or a king. And, you know, down the line, people are born into their castes. Right. We don't have that experience as Westerners and certainly in the United States. Corinth is actually closer to our experience. It was one of the only places in the empire where you could start totally fresh. Uh, uh, it was the only place where that I'm aware of, that a former slave could actually hold public office. That's a law. Oh. But that didn't exist anywhere else. But, I mean, you're a former slave. You know, you've been in prison someplace. You've got a shady past. Where do you go? How do you start fresh? You could go to Corinthian. You could go to Corinth, and ain't nobody going to ask about your past, right? Yeah, exactly, because it's, it's all new. It's like new money. It kind is. Of, yeah. And it's a, it's a port town. There was a lot of debauchery. There was a ton of sexual immorality. They were sports crazed. They were second. They, they're down the road from Athens, which also tells you a lot about them. They, they, so they were kind of like inferiority complex? They big time had an inferiority complex. Yeah. They had what was called the biennial Isthmus Games which was, you've probably never heard of because it always took the backseat to the Olympics, which the Athenians held up the road. But the Isthmus Games was one of the biggest events in the ancient world. It was massive. Um, which, by the way, St. Paul, when he lives in Corinth, do you remember Make, what his occupation he was? He makes tents because you have so many visiting athletics Yeah, and all the visitors and all the athletes. There's a good market for tent making. He doesn't say that's his occupation anywhere else. Anyway. Um, but it also had this reputation again with sports and 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 uh, debauchery and sexuality and all this stuff. Hold it on. was a what, big what, time. Was that debauchery? Is that a place debauchery. in the Middle Eastern country? Come on, Dubai, Dubai, Dubai tree, Dubai tree. Okay, I'm sorry. But uh, but it was one of those. What what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. It's like a, it's a, <laughs> like a lot. It's like a port, Las Vegas. Oh, or a Shanghai. You know, some major huge port city where always people are coming in and out. There's lots of opportunities for entrepreneurs and fresh money. Nobody's going to ask you about your past. Bangkok. But they want to be. They want to be wise. So you see the theme of wisdom and knowledge and understanding come up a lot because philosophy. It's all these sort of. Yeah, philosophy. Well, but it's th this all... is going to be really critical for actually how we understand the reading that we're talking about now. It is. But it's big because you have all these people who are from a bunch of shady backgrounds and all these kind of weird things who want to be seen and known and respected and looked up to and were wealthy now and were somebody's. But the whole rest of the ancient world looked at them and like, you guys are dirt bags and you're nobody and yeah, great you, you're you, rich but your johnny come lately is you made your money in questionable ways and whenever you do one stuff, of us you're just corinthizing corinthizing the whole rest of the world was a verb that sosthenes the playwright created um and the athenians in particular so they have this inferiority complex now it's into that situation that you have these people who are trying desperately to be somebody and you have paul who's now stepped in and say no look the way to be somebody is through Jesus Christ. And he goes through this whole litany of them, like chapters one through three about, you know, Christ chose what was lowly and despised and lame and miserable and, and a bunch of losers like you to show his great glory. <laughs> but if you remember Corinthians, he keeps kind of tearing them down constantly <laughs> to show that God could even use you. <laughs> he even used the likes of you guys. And they're like, oh, thank you, I guess, Paul. Well, but I he's mean, tearing them down a lot. 
because one of the things that happens is that if you feel low, you start to take your identity from things that are outside of yourself. Right. Which is which is a bit which is a precise thing that they're they're talking about. So what would happen is that um, they prize themselves on bringing in great lecturers from outside, and so there was so they they were they're saying like, oh hey, we're going to bring this great philosopher, and then they bring this new fancy philosophy in, and they're like, hey, I I uh, I am all about Epiclitus, you know. Absolutely. So they're they're like I belong to Epiclitus, and you know the, this other guy. I don't even know if that's a philosopher. Sure, <laughs> I'm just let's go with it. You know, like so so they're they're going yeah. and they're actually really paying attention to belonging and taking identity from a certain philosophical set. They like personality cults. They yeah. like attaching themselves to people, which, which is precisely where this when I was a, comes in. when I was studying philosophy, I, I remember I like. I, I like wanted to identify with something, so I I was like I am a phenomenological realist, and like I had no idea <laughs> what that, that I had no idea what that really meant because that was like what my brother was, and, and but, so but I just wanted Neil. to sound cool because I wanted identity, you know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, identity no, and thought, and we all do. Yeah, and, we all want to be associated with someone. Or, yeah, you know, there's all I I'm sure every one of you has that person in your life that you want to be with them because. Like I want to associate myself with Father Peter because then I'll be cool. Yeah, and then I'll be in. Well, then I'll have cool. identity. Yeah, like because because like the truth is is that it's kind of it's hard to go through the world and be like I am me and this is real and I feel vulnerable in the world as just the ideas that I have and the, the actions that I do. Well, it's real. It's really hard to actually just be vulnerable to the reality of one's own situation. Yes, that's true. But Paul's also saying it's okay to have, it's okay to have personality cult in a certain sense, as long as it's the right personality. So let's let's read what he says. So he says, "I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus, uh, that all of you agree in what you say. There be no division." So their primary problem, at least at this point in the letter, is division, not among the Corinthians, but among the church of Corinth. And one of the things that comes out in the letter is that the sin and the immorality among the church in Corinth rivals what's happening in the secular culture of uh, Corinth. This is a big problem. So he's like, this isn't okay. This is happening in the church. Because he's not speaking to the Corinthian culture. He's speaking to the church. And he says, okay, you guys are divided. For it's been reported to me, my brothers and sisters, by Chloe's people. Chloe, by the way, was a house church leader in Corinth. So it meant she was a wealthy woman who had become a believer who had a house that was big enough to house the church. And they met in her house. Uh, she's probably significant, had good character, so she was chosen to be that. But she has sent basically spies and said, hey, Paul, you got to hear about what's happening here because things are not good. You left. You left us kind of to our own devices. Things are real bad. So she sent people to Paul to report what's going on so that Paul could say, oh, no, and write back and try to solve this. Right. That's who Chloe's people are. There are rivalries among you. I mean that each of you are saying, well, I belong to Paul or I belong to Apollos or I belong to Cephas or I belong to Christ. Or Dr. Scott Powell. Yeah. Father Peter. Uh, I'm a lanky guys listener. I'm a Catholic stuff you should know listener. I'm a Father Robert Barron listener. I listen to Bishop Father Michael Robert. Schmidt. I, I mean, this is this is a joke, but you can kind of see how like we it's it, we want to put our identity in something. I listen and people to are saying, percent invisible. Yeah, I'm actually playing with the, the challenge coin in my hand right now. I like to point out podcasts that few people have heard of because it makes me feel cool. Yeah, <laughs> no, <laughs> that's, that's true. Me. I know. But they're like, I'm a really good Christian because I'm associated with Paul. Right. And others are like, well, no, I'm associated with Kephas. Who's Kephas? 
Peter. Peter, it means rock, right? No, I'm associated with Peter. That makes me a better Christian. Well, no, Apollos is way cooler because he's a better speaker. And then other people are like, well, no, I'm a good Christian because I'm with Christ. Mm. And they're literally putting Jesus in the same camp as Apollos and Paul and Peter and the rest because they want to rally and be attached to these. You, you can see, I get the impression, again, based on what you said, the fear of the Corinthians that they so desperately want something to identify themselves with. They are so afraid of not having that identity and that personality mm. culture rally around. They are desperately grasping for whatever they can. Yes. I'm a JP2 Catholic. No, I'm a Pope Francis Catholic. No, I'm a Benedict Catholic. I mean, I, I, we hear stuff like this. Yes. No, their job is to point to Jesus Christ. And if you're not a Christ Catholic, then you're not a Catholic. If you're just rallying around Paul, and Paul later, he says, is Christ divided? Was I crucified for you? It's not about me. Don't rally around me right, for Pete's sake. Right. For Christ didn't send me to baptize you, but to cre- preach the gospel. So people are basically, what, what is this baptism thing? I mean, you know, it, it's as if someone was like, well, my child is holier because Archbishop Aquila baptized my child. Oh, Pope Francis baptized my child. Well, I was just baptized by Father Peter Mustard. I guess I'm not as good. He's like, no, it's Jesus. He's like, thank good. He says later on, he's like, thank goodness I hardly baptized any of you freaks or else you'd all be worshiping me because I was your baptizer. It's not about me. Right. The baptism is in Jesus Christ, not the person who baptized you. I mean, that's great, but I, you know. I could see somebody being like, oh, man, we had the archbishop baptize our kid. That is so big. It makes that baptism better than your baptism. You know, yeah, yeah. You know, you can kind of see the mindset of like, yeah, I'm a big deal. This is what they're doing. But I do think now that you pointed it out, all of those kinds of things, which are human temptations, it's all based out of fear. Because yes. we so desperately don't know how to put our identity in Jesus and Jesus alone. Because Jesus is hard to see. Jesus... I don't hear Jesus' voice in my ears when well, I pray to him. I don't, it, it takes I work him, to believe. It takes work to believe, and that's scary. And that's why these people are like, it'd just be way easier to call myself a Father Peter Catholic and leave it at that. Right. It's cool I'm with Father Peter. It's cool I'm with Archbishop Quill. It's cool I'm with Father Michael Schmitz, whatever it is. Right. And I mean, God forbid that you associate yourself with us or with those people because our job is to point to Jesus Christ. Pope Francis' job is not to be big guy, important man, Pope Francis. It's to point the flock toward Jesus Christ. Absolutely. And if he's not doing that, then you're missing it. Or if we're not seeing that, then we're missing it. And that's what Paul's getting at. But all that is because the world is hard. It's hard to see the end of putting yourself in God's will. And it's really scary to not feel like you have anything to grasp onto. So I see you. I'll grasp onto you. And it's good. We need brothers and sisters to build us up and mentors and role models and leaders and shepherds and pastors. We need those things as long as we don't see them as the be-all, end-all. They are not the end. They are the root. Yes. This is what the Corinthians are struggling with, which is a very, very human struggle, I think. Yeah. I, I remember feeling... I remember when Archbishop Chaput left the Archdiocese of Denver and he was, you know, he'd been Archbishop forever. And I was like, what are we going to do? Like, who am I going to turn to? I don't know who our new Archbishop is going to be. What do I do? I felt, you know, disoriented because I'd come back to the church and turned to Archbishop Chaput and he was so formative in my life. And I'm like, what do I do now? And instead of saying, God's going to have someone, God will bring someone. He's in charge of this. It's not about the person. It's about, yeah, you know, and, and of course he brought Archbishop Aquila and praise be to God for that. So, but it's hard in that moment. of like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. Yeah, he, this is where the Corinthians are at. Yeah. He brought the bald eagle. He did. Wow. <laughs> Aquila means eagle and he shaves his head. So I've been calling him Archbishop Bald Eagle. 
Yes, you have. The eagle has landed. So I'm just going to leave that. <laughs> you're, you're, I'm going to leave that dude, there. I, re- I love him. I love him. That's all. Oh, that's I do nothing, as well. That's nothing but respect. That that's why you're like, you're like, please stop talking. <laughs> you're making me feel very uncomfortable, friend. All right. So we get to the gospel, right? Now, the, the very way it begins, we've been talking about fear, right? The gospel begins with a moment of fear. Jesus doesn't have fear in the sinful sense, but I mean, he has human emotion. So here's Jesus. Jesus, by the way, has just, so he's been baptized by John the Baptist. Right after the baptism, he went off to be tempted in the wilderness by Mm -hmm. the evil one. So where's the wilderness? Well, the wilderness in the Jewish ethos is understood to be the region around the Jordan. So he's down south. That's where the, the quote unquote wilderness is around the Jordan Valley. Now he hears word that John the Baptist has been arrested. So he's like, I'm out of here. <laughs> so he withdraws, not because he's scared, but because this, and we've talked about this a lot on the podcast, Jesus didn't merely come to die. He came to establish a church that he could die for. Well, so he, Jesus, he came to establish the way. Yeah, like absolutely. The, the, like, the, yes, to establish a church, but to, like, like Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And like, like he, he, he isn't like, he's not just doing things arbitrarily. He's actually trying to show how he walks with all of humanity, but then also show humanity the way to walk. It's, it's like this wild combination. I I don't know if if my friend got arrested, I would be out of there straight up. Yeah. And the reason I say that, I mean, we, I've heard it said that Jesus's reason for living was dying, which that's not true. And even in the gospels, the only, the first, so, I mean, constantly in the gospel, you see Jesus evading death. Well, well, what it says, what that statement says is that's the end, not the means. Right. The, the, like yeah. this is the thing is that, the, what, it, what is the, what is the true end is the uh, divinization of man. Well, yes. Right. Being united to him. You Being united and invited into but the Holy does, Trinity. But how does he do that? Right. He does it through the church. The reason I point out the church, he do you remember what the moment, the first moment in the Gospels that Jesus begins to unveil himself to the rest of the world? Do you know what moment that is? Baptism? No, it's when he gives the keys to Peter. Oh. It says in Matthew 16, from that time, he began to show his disciples that he must suffer many things, and he began to head toward Jerusalem. Uh. So specifically from that time, that's what he needed to do. Now there's a church. Now there's an al-bayit. There's a keeper of the keys. There is an ecclesia. And now I can head toward crucifixion because I know that my mission will continue through. My grace will be poured out through this church made up of a bunch of schmucks. Kind of because, you know, they deny him and stuff. Yep. Anyway. All right. So that's where we are. So John had been arrested. So he withdraws to Galilee which is where he grew up, so there's good reason to go back. He went to Nazareth. You don't get the impression he stayed very long. He left Nazareth, and he went to live in Capernaum by the sea. Live implies that he, he's going to stay there for a while. So he goes to I mean, Capernaum. They, they even speak of it as his hometown it's home af- base after this. For, the, for the, the Galilean mission, which is probably the bulk of his mission, that's home base. He stays up in Capernaum for a while. Capernaum's a pretty significant town. It's not the biggest town in the region, but it's pretty big. It's bigger than Nazareth. I like Capernaum. I found it oh, yeah, the most beautiful place. Oh. I mean, I had a lot of experience in, in Capernaum. So did Jesus. So you're in good company. <laughs> so he is now, we're now in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, notice even though, and your point is a good one because we just don't know about much about those two tribes. Yeah. So the fact that there's two fairly, um, fairly unwell not unwell known, uh, obscure. That's the word I'm looking for. These relatively obscure tribes that Matthew makes a point of saying, oh, remember Zebulun and Naphtali? That's where he is. 
that's his point of reference for you, to use two obscure tribes. And the reason he uses those is because he knows the prophecy of Isaiah. And Matthew wants you to be reminded of the prophecy of Isaiah. This mm. is Zebul and Naphtali, who were basically put to shame first, are going to be um, vindicated first in a certain sense. He's like, that's this. I want to make sure that you see that that weird prophecy from Isaiah is fulfilled right here, right now. Because there's no other reason to pull out that point of reference. It's a weird point of reference. Capernaum should be enough. Right but he here, right now. So tomorrow. That what might be said through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lamb of Zebulun, of Natali, the way to the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light upon those dwelling in a land overshadowed by death. Light has risen. What is the land overshadowed by death? It's not just the Galilee of the Gentiles. It's not just Israel. It's not just the Northern Kingdom. It is the world entrenched in sin. Yeah. Matthew is beginning to try to get us to think bigger than what we thought the reality was. The people who sat in darkness are not just the Northern Kingdom. It's not just the tribe. It's not just this particular group of people. It is, you know, so when, when, Isaiah is talking all about the defeat of our enemies and looking forward to this day when the rod of the taskmaster will be broken. He's not just talking about the Assyrian king. He's talking about the rod of the taskmaster who is Satan, who is the evil one. That taskmaster is going to be brought down. Mm. That rod is going to be broken, not just Tigath Pileser III of Assyria. It's much bigger than you ever dreamt it was. And so the first words out of Jesus's mouth, it's literally the first words of his public ministry. He says, repent, turn around for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Which uh, is is, uh, not actually, it's metanoia. The the Greek word here being used is, it is actually metanoius or something like that. Yeah, metanoius. Yeah, yeah, metanoius. Is it accusative sense? Yeah, I think so. I don't know. But that, you know, originally- Don't don't accuse me of that. in, uh, In Koine Greek, that's not a religious term. It's not a theological word. It's a, it's a directional term. So metanoia, originally, it, it, it gained theological and spiritual significance, but originally it just literally meant to turn around. So if you were driving the wrong way on the road, someone could yell at you, metanoia. It just means turn around. You're going the wrong direction. <laughs> That's the first public words out of Jesus' mouth. Yeah. Turn around. You're headed the wrong way. Why? Because the people he's beginning to minister to are looking for the wrong kind of kingdom. They're following messiahs who are promising them wealth and identity and personality cult and military prowess and all of these things that they were afraid of in second in first Corinthians, right? Mm. Wanting to be identified with something, wanting yeah. to grasp on and latch on to someone. Jesus says, no, turn around from them. Turn around from those things. Because why? The kingdom is literally within your reach. It's at hand. It has come to you. You just have to reach out and grab it. You just can't see it because it's not what you thought it was going to look like. Because the reality of it's a little scarier than yeah. what you thought. And, and he's doing that as the first response to those who had the first expression of being taken away. Yes. He, he's actually starting in the place that Absolutely. began it all. Absolutely. And his, his lips are open and he's declaring the praise of God. Absolutely. And what does he do there? This he is calls the- his two, Peter and Andrew. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Because we were just talking about that premise this is the discipleship model right this is i mean what what do you do you call i this this is a premise that we learned in folk in our years in focus and in the ministries and the way that we've been trained i mean the, the best way to do ministry is not just to get up on top of a big pulpit or soapbox and preach at people 
that can be effective. And there are times when Jesus gets on a big rock and preaches at people, to yeah. people. But the most effective way is to find a couple people in your life and invest deeply in them. Absolutely. Right? This is where Jesus first begins to show that model. He sees the he sees these two and they call and then and then they I always think about the Zebedee's dad. Like Yeah, poor Zebedee's dad. Who is that bro? And like what was his experience? <laughs> I think Where's it, everyone going? I think that would actually be a really interesting historical knowledge, uh, novel. historical novel, novel, and we just call it Zebedee's Dad. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> wait, is, isn't Zebedee the dad? Yeah, their father Zebedee. Zebedee, Zebedee is oh, yeah. the dad. That's <laughs> grandfather. If you're talking about Zebedee's dad, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just we just call him Zebedee. Yeah, there, there's nobody also, names their kid Zebedee, by the way, because he's just left there. <laughs> he's he means left behind. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah. If you're a fundamentalist, um, the one thing I want to say about this, there is a there's does it a, really mean left behind? No, it doesn't. Oh, but okay. there's something kind of oxymoronic, I think. In uh, is that somebody who doesn't know how to wash their face? <laughs> nice, well played. Yeah, but in in what's happening here, and this is sort of it runs throughout all of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew makes a point, and we mentioned this earlier in the podcast. Matthew makes a point of pointing out, a point of pointing out, a point of letting you know that this is the, the region of the Gentiles. Jesus starts his ministry not in a Jewish region, but in a Gentile region, even mm. though Jesus is the king of the Jews. That's true. Galilee though, of the Gentiles was still, even in his day, in the Galilee, it was of Gentiles? Primarily Gentile. There's, oh. Jew, there's certainly Jewish people there. There's but synagogues. The, but what about land of Zebedee and Naphtali? But remember, that's long gone. Assyria took them over. <gasps> oh, years man, before. I didn't even put that together. These are the Samaritans who we know from the gospel accounts that the Jewish people don't like the Samaritans. Why? No. Because the Samaritans are kind of half-breeds, They're to put bloods. it crassly, which means that they have some Jewish blood, but they've been intermarried and intermingled into all these different Gentiles. It's up in the Galilee that those people all still live. There are Jewish enclaves, for sure. Jesus' family was Jewish. He lives in Nazareth. Obviously, there's Jewish people there. But it's predominantly Gentile and mixed. That's where Jesus begins the ministry. He doesn't. You'd expect him to begin in Jerusalem or something. Start in the capital city at the temple, right? But he doesn't. He goes up north to the Galilee. But here's what's ironic to me. So that, that fits the plot. You're like, okay. So he starts with the outsiders. He starts with the Gentiles because this is worldwide and it's universal. It's for everyone. But he goes to the region of the Gentiles and he starts with Jews. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> it is. He leaves the Jewish region to go to the Gentile region to find the only Jews that are there. And the people he calls and he ministers directly to are the Jewish people. Mm. But he goes, so they're, they're, you're left with this tension a little bit because he, the gospel writers want you to know Jesus does begin within the household of Israel. He does have to start in the house of Judah because that's where he comes from. And that's the way that in the course of salvation history, God planned for it to be. God always moves from the particular to the universal. Right. He saves Israel for the sake of the rest of the nations. He chooses Abraham for the sake of the rest of the nations. Jesus begins with the Jewish people for the sake of going out. But he begins with the Jewish people in a Gentile place because Matthew want, Jesus wants to create this tension in us. That it's not simply an either or, it's a both and. But you're in this Gentile territory kind of wanting and longing for Jesus to do a little bit more. You're like, well, Peter and James, I mean, that, that's cool. There's some fishermen who are hanging out on the lake and they're fish, you know, they're, they're fishermen, they're Jewish. That's good. But he leaves it to them to sort of do the universality of the rest of the, the mission. Mm. He invests in them so yes. that he can save them. 
and then they have to do the legwork to get to the rest. Which is the best, which is what we still do now. But you do get that both and here. Mm-hmm. I, I, just, I just want to point out the irony of it. He leaves the Jewish region to go to the Gentile region to find the Jews. So wild. Which is, which is right. It kind of makes sense. That's kind of what the new evangelization is, actually. Because it's also sort of the outsider Jews. They're not outsiders. I'm sure they're still devout. They're faithful. The Holy Family certainly is faithful. I bet you they're But they're not the powerful. I bet They're not the wealthy. They're not the bourgeois. They're not the influential. He goes to the outside rim. I I bet you their accents were um, actually marked by being in Galilee, in in Gentile territory. So that when they speak, they were actually marked with, you know, they got a little bit of the brogue going there. (laughs) You're welcome to it there. Ireland of the Galilee. The Ireland of the Galilee. Little Ireland. (laughs) Called Capernaum. (laughs) Uh, So don't be afraid. The Lord may send you to the outer rim. He probably will. That's actually most likely. So, you know, put on your socks. Put on your socks. (laughs) Put on your socks. You know, staple up your shoes. And here we go. I guess if you have to. (laughs) You've had to. I I like it. Zebulun and Naphtali, the uh, the Ireland of the Galilees. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everybody. We'll be back next week. God bless you. uh, God bless you. See you then. Bye. The Word in the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.lankyguys.org. See you next week.